Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? I'm grand, thanks Ed. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm looking forward to a three-day weekend, it being Labor Day weekend here in the US, and just generally not doing very much, except maybe catching up on some 2018 releases. Or some, you know, 1938 releases, as is my other kind of thing. Of course. <laughs> for, just old there's, movies I've never seen. Yeah, there's a fair bit to catch up on, uh, particularly mm. the stuff before I was born. Uh, I'm just always, always catching up. Mm, that uh, reminded me, I've had an idea to do a joke video thing on, on YouTube for ages, which I've never been able to do just because I haven't really had the wherewithal to get it together, which is to pretend that I'm starting a, a series of reaction videos but doing it for incredibly old movies so I like <laughs> to try and find a niche for myself and it would only be one video which would be me watching the train arriving at the station and then <laughs> jumping out of frame as it starts out of fear uh, which I, is a, an incredibly niche joke that I would find very amusing. It's brilliant. But, uh, Ed you should yeah. have told told me this off mic now someone else is gonna do it. Yeah I also had an idea which I can't do now because Pablo Hidalgo, the LucasArts kind of law guy, has essentially done this already, which is, uh, you know, there's all of those blank out of context Twitter accounts. Most recently, the Phantom Fred out of context Twitter account. And I wanted to do like Unshen Andalou out of context because it's uh. basically Unshen Andalou. But he started doing a picture of a man sneezing, which is like one of the early... I think Edison <laughs> experiments, which uh, I think is an incredibly funny thing to do with your Twitter account and your your reach of like hundreds of thousands of people. I am definitely having a nerdgasm right now. It makes all of my film studies A level revision entirely worth it just to have the satisfaction <laughs> of getting these jokes. Keep it coming. <laughs> well, well, we'll pass all them out because uh, to to let people look behind the curtain a little bit we're recording a bunch of episodes this weekend to cover the next couple of weeks so uh yeah i'll, I'll try and parcel out the film nerd jokes over the next <laughs> couple of weeks give something for people to look out for <laughs> and for the moment we'll jump straight into the news and i think kind of like the, the thing to probably lead off on was the nor the the news that broke yesterday on on friday that has really shaken the film and culture and just general the general journalism world to its core which was the news that the village voice is ceasing publication after 63 years you know the voice is a legendary paper based out of new york and old weekly that's published and was given away for free for decades and decades and decades and was home to dozens of great film writers and music writers robert Criscow, you know kind of really pioneered a lot of what we consider music journalism writing there you had andrew saris wrote there you know during the, the time when the rivalry and sniping between him and pauline kale was at its peak and really defined a lot of the arguments within film criticism that still exist to this day and more recently you had people like uh, bill gayabiri writing there who's who's probably the best film critic working today certainly in the absolute upper echelon of people who are practicing the form now 
And whenever a venerable institution like that ends, it's obviously very, very sad, but there, there is something so uniquely iconic about the Village Voice ending that understandably has just really made everyone incredibly sad over the last couple of days, myself included. I'm still in shock. I think, like you said, it's a venerable institution. 62. That's an incredible mm. amount of time to be publishing. And I think it was still, it managed to be this local paper, because of course it was based in the village in, in New York, that had a global stage because of the quality of its criticism, but also how it had this reputation for being a bit more alternative or offbeat. And that ended up meaning that it covered a lot more than just your average mainstream paper particularly in terms of more kind of lgbtq stuff Mm. and it really was the voice of the village and represented everyone that was there and yet it managed to be so specific in what it did that it went round the world like you you would see you know not up until long ago you'd get like the big banners um, and stars on posters and upcoming things and the village voice was always one that I'd look at and think oh okay that's worth a shot like that was the mm. kind of trust I had in it for being something because um, I've wavered with other papers um, and reviewing and, and publishing outlets for the past couple of years but the village voice was definitely still one where I thought oh that's that's worth it and I'm not too um, like you said this is broken really recently and I haven't had a chance to properly look into it but it seems a little bit suspicious or sinister the circumstances mm. that have happened around it like not too dissimilar to what's happened to LA Weekly which again yeah. is something that I really loved having been to the City of Angels a whole three times in my short little life I'd always pick up LA Weekly and it would have I remember when Heath Ledger died they would always have these incredible articles and there was this really beautiful long read that ended up being more about catching Heath Ledger as a very private person seeing him around LA on his motorbike and this weird kind of sense of reverence that you have for someone that you don't know but you see around and now is suddenly gone partly because of that lack of anonymity that that he had but it sounds like some big nasty buyout happening um so I want to look into it more but I'm just in shock Mm, yeah from my understanding it's kind of a similar situation that happened with the whichever New York paper it was recently that announced that they were having a bunch of layoffs where essentially, and also this is kind of something that's hit the AV club as well, where essentially you had a new buyer who came in and said that, oh, we're going to revitalise the paper or whatever, but then what they actually do is end up just gutting it and so that seemingly so they can just sell off the parts and uh, enrich themselves with the benefits of the workers, essentially. Uh, allegedly, but yeah, basically. That seems to be what's happening there. And it, it seems to be something that's happening at a lot of inst- uh, of publications now. The, the, the Probably the one exception being something like the LA Times, which mm. recently was bought by a seemingly benevolent billionaire who's investing more money into it and seems to be improving the situation for everyone involved compared to when they were owned by Tronk, who everyone hates because they do essentially the same thing of cutting staff and seeming to just be focused on trying to make a profit from journalism, which is inherently an unprofitable business, but because it's a valuable public service that just happens to involve like advertising and things like that. So there is a little bit of revenue, but it's not like that many people have ever got wildly rich from journalism, except for, I don't know, William Randolph Hearst, but I'm pretty sure he had 
money and coming from other resources you know yeah it gets into that that thing from citizen kane of uh, of kane saying like you know i I lost a million dollars this year or last year i've lost a million dollars this year and i'll lose a million dollars next year and the paper will go out of business in 60 years or whatever like that seems to be that's how journalism is meant to work you're meant to just keep doing it because it's important to keep people informed and it's important to let people know what's happening in the place that they live and holding the powerful accountable which is something in addition to their stellar culture writing that the voice did brilliantly which is more you know given the current state of the press in the u.s it just seems like one thing after another it's quite mm. a dark time and and this was the same week that it was announced that the pittsburgh uh i can't remember what the actual name of the paper is but basically the the last major local paper in pittsburgh closed and so pittsburgh pennsylvania is now the largest city in america to not have a local paper which is like you say it's it's dark and terrifying that that's the case because you're not going to get unless you know a story is a particularly egregious and terrible you're not going to get national papers turning their focus on what's happening in an individual city unless you know it's la or new york maybe but so if local politicians aren't being investigated by reporters if they aren't being held accountable by the people who know the layout of the local terrain or whatever then there's a real chance that people can just get away with murder if there's no one there to report on it uh, and yes yeah, in- incredibly yeah, it's incredibly dispiriting speaking of dispiriting things mm. and dark things yeah this w- would have been the lead-off story if because it's it speaks to a lot of terrible things going on if it weren't for the fact that something that speaks to even more terrible things going on hadn't happened boy the news yikes was the news that Louis C.K. had attempted to mount something of a comeback this week by showing up unannounced to do a 15-minute set at the Comedy Cellar in New York, which, you know, is kind of a legendary comedy venue, mainly because uh, it's featured in his TV show, Louis, but obviously it had a reputation before that. But I think it's a, a venue that is uniquely connected with him at this point, and... He showed up, he did a 15-minute set in which he made no reference to the fact that he has been out of the public eye for the better part of a year because he admitted to masturbating in front of female comics and just generally being a absolute creep and a predator and an abuser and also made a joke about rape whistles being unclean. And, uh, you know, everyone... Uh, well, not everyone, but most people have acted aghast at this for very good reason, which is that it's only been 10 months or something since that story broke and he kind of said he was going to go away, he was going to listen. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that there's no context in which Louis C.K. could return and and not be accepted. Like, I'm fairly sure if there was signs that he had tried to make amends and, you know, had to tried to undo some of the considerable damage he's done to the careers of the women that he menaced and hounded out of the industry, then maybe there would be room for discussion about when he could return. But clearly this way that he has done this shows that he has learnt nothing, feels like he's ready to return despite having not done anything, and has decided to use his platform as a fairly prominent stand-up to do even more damage 
than he had already done. And yeah, I think it's it's fair to say to quote uh, Maureen uh, Ryan, who wrote a piece on this in The Hollywood Reporter, uh, I think it's fair to say I'm done with, with Louis C.K. I think everyone should be done with him at this point. I mean, Kel Surprise, mm. I entirely agree. I just wonder, like, he must still have an agent, management. Like, he's not a one-man band. Like, you, you get no. so big, and as far as I'm aware, no one dropped him. But imagine this. It feels like Max Gold from How to Make It in USA. Like, hey, never mind all those women that you traumatised and destroyed the careers of. You just need to go right back in there. Bang! Unexpected. Who said, who thought that was a good idea? No one knew he was going to turn up. And then he essentially talked about himself in mm. a way that was unaware, forcing himself on people again. Who thought in any way, shape or form that was a good comeback considering what he has admitted to doing? He's literally doing it again. He is bursting in front of people, locking them in a room mm -hmm. without notice, wanking in front of them in a slightly yes. different way, but still. And... I kind of had this vision in my head of like Jack Torrance like axing through the door like it's Louie <laughs> I mean yeah. the horror the horror there's a great article uh floating about on Vulture just now where one of the Vulture reporters talks to a couple of women who are actually at the show and uh, they said that there were four women in the front row absolutely stony faced just not having mm. it but you know in that and they stayed put and I totally get that because there's that kind of sense of like, maybe I'm strong enough to witness this and I just need to bear witness to something horrible. Mm. Also, if I leave, that might, things might get worse. But yet again, he's, he's making women terrified and reading for the spot. Well done, Louis. And then lots of other people were around in the club being like, yeah, we love you, Louis. We're so glad you're back. And there was some like really catchy sort of responses and rightly so to this um, apparent rape whistle joke but mm. mainly the men were loving it and it wasn't yeah. it wasn't a full crowd but it was a significant uh minority should we say uh, a loud minority um and i think you're right we should be fucking done with him like whatever happened before like how on any level do you think this is a good way to stage a comeback at all mm. um he's done nothing he has not repented in the slightest there's no how how can this be seen as him having listened or made amends or what what was what does he think his best case scenario was? He seems actually like unhinged and I fear for his daughters. Mm. Yeah, to again call back to the Maureen Ryan take on it, which I think was uh was really, really great, and I'll put a link to that in the description for this episode. She, you know, said that there are ways that if he wanted to mount a comeback, you know, there are ways in keeping with his approach to comedy that he could have done, which is like maybe he could have filmed a special in secret, released it on his website, and then forced people, not forced people, but you know, like it would have meant that people would have had to engage with him coming to terms with this on on their own terms. Yeah. Uh, on a kind, also on a, an artistic level, you know, if he makes a whole special which is about him realizing that he has hurt people and trying to really kind of work through some things, which is is kind of his whole approach to comedy has always been: I am a broken, messed up person. I'm going to dig into this all sort sort of thing. But him doing it this way, and 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 Ryan points this out in her piece, 
it really does underline how much of that whole thing has essentially been a con this whole time like this has been him erecting a shield by saying him being seemingly so open open about you know all the things that are kind of like weird about his psyche and about all of the the sex stuff that he kind of like worked through on stage was really just a way to make people think that he was this enlightened person and you know like a guy who was trying to deal with you know the what it what it means to be like a man in the modern age when in fact what he was doing was just giving himself license to have that as the public persona and then just to be doing horrible things behind the surface and like this the fact that he came back in this way i think underlines just how false that whole narrative of his entire career actually is he was hiding in plain sight and he's doing the same thing absolutely the same thing again has he changed has he fuck will he change of course he won't done uh, and speaking of people who... <laughs> yes let's let's move on to the next uh cheery uh hollywood cheery subject institution but, yeah but but someone who may be done who knows but certainly a, a, an interesting development in the decades long and very slow reckoning with woody allen which certainly doesn't it seems to have picked up at least in the last couple of years in the the wake of dylan farrow's uh open letter about you know being abused by woody allen um but but it was announced that woody allen's latest film a rainy day in new york which is like the most woody allen title for a movie ever has been shelved by amazon who had been his benefactor over the last couple of years they jumped on board right at the time it seems and there are currently no plans to release it at least from amazon's point of view presumably because the last movies they put out wonder wheel did no business theatrically and you know was rightly subsumed by people saying um why are we putting out woody allen movies now (laughs) in the wake of all of the me too revelations and the fact that he has been a fairly widely known to be an abuser for you know over 20 years at this point or or Alleged to be an abuser, but I think a greater swathe of the people who follow media are kind of coming around to the idea that he probably did it at Um, this point. And while I still think it's probably, and I say this as someone who has watched way too many of Woody Allen's movies and definitely should have stopped watching them some time ago, probably late earlier than I did. It feels like this uh, is a reckoning that has, has been a long time coming and while I think all of those people involved in the movie shouldn't have agreed to work with him at this point, because I think there's no argument for plausible deniability, the fact that someone somewhere said, yeah, we probably shouldn't enable this guy anymore is maybe a positive step. I would hope so. I think it's quite a... Maybe positive is too strong a word, because I feel like maybe there'll be someone else who'll snap him up. I think it's... Mm particularly given everything that went on with Amazon not that long ago. Let's not remember, let's not forget uh, mm. their, their head uh, being, uh, being investigated. I wonder where that's up to. I feel the same ickiness as you, Ed, because it took me a long time to stop watching his films. I stopped watching his films more because they were getting worse and worse than because of these allegations. Because as long as I've been 
watching the Allen film there were these allegations. Yeah. And they have got louder Same. and louder and louder. And I think that is partly due to Roman Farrow um, being mm. an absolute hero in the best way that an investigative journalist can. And that it's so much water so close to home in that situation. Yeah, you, you definitely get a sense that the work that he has been doing in terms of investigating and, and he was also in the news this week because he talked about how NBC executives had tried to tell him to stop investigating Harvey Weinstein oh. which um, is very telling I think of just the the way that institutions support abusers if they're you know successful men but yeah like the the fact that this is something that's so central to shaping his his life, his personal life, I think is certainly seems like something that has driven his crusade against abusers and, uh, and he is to be endlessly commended for that sort of stuff. Like his reporting over the last year and a half or so has been uh, absolutely, I think, crucial to helping to shape the broader debate around sexual assault. And to kind of like end this news segment on a kind of a, a lighter note, because <laughs> it's a uh, a story that I personally found to be very, very funny was the news that earlier in this week, Alec Baldwin had been cast in the upcoming and in no way necessary Joker movie as Thomas Wayne, Bruce Wayne's father, uh, who, um, I mean, I, I, I think probably dies in the movie. Like, I'm not sure. Like, I'm not sure that story's been told enough times already, but certainly someone felt that we really need to see Batman's parents get moaned down in an alley for the 87th time um but he had been cast in the movie was met with um I, I would say a metric ton of disdain and jokes at that expense and then within three or four days had announced he had left the movie so um yeah don't don't let anyone ever tell you that social media can't make change completely and i think this is the kind of stuff that i find quite interesting and hopeful is that we don't have to wait until films get made to then be angry about things like casting. <laughs> I mean, Alec, yeah. Bald Alec Baldwin is such a weird figure. Like, I will never forget that voicemail he left his daughter, ever. Oh, yeah. And he is still welcomed back by lots of people, including SNL. Mm. And... Like, there are other actors. <laughs> and I think this is the thing that I appreciate as well. Like, how much of Batman's parents are actually going to be in this film anyway? I don't know whether there's a foreboding scene at breakfast. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, then he's, and then he's gone. Why do we even need him in it anyway? And I do think a lot of people say, like, oh, is this mob mentality and trying to... Um, but then capitalism is mob mentality. I'm sorry. But, and either you use your voice or you use your money and social media has sort of muddied the water between the two but it does appear that some people are listening now and mm. these are again things that we've discussed in terms of i mean i don't think jack whitehall's going anywhere as we discussed the other week but yeah. we still have things like activists fighting up for the rights of trans actors mm. i still enjoy scarlett johansson being cast as literally anyone as often uh, <laughs> resurges uh, pleasingly on Twitter. Uh, she'll be James Bond, I'm sure, next. So I think I'm glad that there's a bit more 
of the audience saying what they are not going to stand for before people get paid. And also, I wonder, though, whether studios will fight back and they'll just not announce anyone until they absolutely have to keep it kind of industry embargoed until, you know, then we just see them all, all the abusers merrily dancing about on our screens. I don't know. Maybe that's my cynicism coming through. But yeah, Baldwin can get to, in my opinion. (laughs) So this week, we're looking ahead at the last couple of months of the year you know at the start of the year we always do a preview in which we look at the films we're excited for from january through to the end of the summer and then we do this smaller one but also deeper one at the end of the year because that's when studios release all of the movies that tend to be really really exciting and not to say that good movies can't be released earlier but just because the way that everyone jockeys for attention in the last nine months of the year that's when a lot of really cool, interesting stuff comes out. So we're going to talk about the movies that we're looking forward to over the next four months or so. And yeah, just just kind of like run through the movies that are particularly exciting to us. It's the heavy hitters. They're all coming up. Yeah. So we're going to start off with September, funnily enough, the month that's just started. And the first movie that I'm really really excited about particularly since a new trailer for it dropped this week is the predator the latest installment in the series that's now 31 years old and has produced precise precisely one good movie <laughs> the first one but i'm i'm quite excited for this particular installment in the venerable sci-fi action gore series because it's written and directed by shane black who is a director whose work i've enjoyed a great deal particularly his movies kiss kiss bang bang and the other guys which are i would say somewhat different to the predator (laughs) but certainly work the, the the stuff we've seen from the predator so far seems to showcase his particular finesse when it comes to funny dialogue and antagonistic yet friendly male relationships which uh, is something he's been good at going all the way back to uh, lethal weapon uh, and the original predator which he helped write to some extent and and also starred in so like he he has kind of gone full circle with this franchise from supporting player slash writer to writer director and it has a, a great cast, an absolutely insane cast. Uh, it's got Travante Rhodes from Moonlight. It's got Jacob Tremblay in a role that uh, so far hasn't been highlighted in the marketing. Uh, Keegan-Michael Key, Olivia Munn, Sterling K. Brown, Thomas Jane, probably trying to get his kids back. Um, or or hunting down vegans who transgress. Uh, it's, yeah, it just, to me, it looks super fun. And I'm really, really excited to see what, shane black does with this this franchise i am exactly the same as soon as i realized that shane black was back in black can i say that um sure acdc reference for the cool kids i was really excited because i remember being sort of made to watch predator my first one and being absolutely delighted that it was actually funny actually Mm. funny and really entertaining and decent sci-fi action thriller yeah um because i think so often you can just lean on effects or and they hold up like it's a good the very first one is a good looking film like years and years Mm. on 
So I am also excited because I really did love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And the other guys was just a really, it felt really nostalgic for me. It felt like one of those kind of 80s lethal weapon style films, but now, but still shot around that time. Yeah, I'm, I just want to get a big bucket of popcorn and play cast bingo with this glorious cast that they've managed to get themselves. Yeah, it is absolutely ridiculous. And um, yeah, if nothing else, it gave us that great photo of the whole cast together where they're all just kind of like crowding around Jacob Tremblay, who's got like a, a big happy grin on his, his face. He's like, oh, you lovely child. Oh, it's and what the a The best grin. possible time. And I mean, you know, remains to be seen. If you and I really enjoy it, I know we had our doubts about the best popular film. Maybe The Predator mm. will bag the award. Yeah, which are... Uh, would certainly be pretty cool. A movie that probably isn't going to get best popular movie, but uh, is, is certainly one I'm really looking forward to, is The Sisters Brothers, which is the, I believe, American debut of Jacques Odiard, who's kind of venerable French filmmaker, directed uh, such films as A Prophet, which I think is a, is a really great film. I love uh, Rust and Bone, which I, has some great moments, but uh, is also kind of a silly movie, but it's got a great Marion Cotillard performance in it. And uh, a film that I really loved, The Beat That My Heart Skipped, which is uh, a, a really terrific drama that came out about 13 years ago at this point. It's an adaptation of a novel by Patrick DeWitt, which I'm a big fan of. It's a very kind of wryly funny Western about these two brothers who are bounty hunters in the movie. They're played by Joaquin Phoenix and John C. Riley, which, honest to God, is about as perfect casting <laughs> as you could get for those roles. I remember reading it thinking, this is a John C. Riley part if ever I've read one. Uh, it's also got Riz Ahmed and Jake Gyllenhaal. It's, from the trailers, it looks like they've got the tone of the book pretty right, which is a mix between wry comedy and genuine earnestness and I'm I'm guessing probably pretty brutal violence uh, based on Adiard's, uh, Odiard's uh, past form. Uh, and I'm, ju- I'm just really excited for it. Yeah, same. I love Odiard. Like, I think I'm with you. I think Ross and Bowman was a tad mawkish and a bit of a weird direction for him to go in story-wise. Mm. Um, but A Prophet remains one of my favourite ever films. I think it managed to carve this really strange, iconic imagery in this incredibly driven protagonist who is so internal and yet incredibly readable at the same time. So it'd be interesting to see what ODR does. I shamefully have not read the novel, but I remember, I think my NDA is all gone now, but when I was still working for Warp Films back in about 2011, it was like the hottest ticket. And hearing mm. that like John C. Riley had snapped it up, it was like, oh, okay, this is serious business. Because you'll have, when it comes to adaptations, you'll often have producers talking to publishers and snapping up rights before books are even published because they're that hot that they're like no we need to get in here now this is actually a dead cert it's going to do really really well so it'll be interesting to see you know it's been seven years in the making like he's had the rights for some time I don't know whether other stuff got in the way or whether it's been but there hasn't been like the usual kind of like oh pre-production development hell or whatever kind of stories around it so you wonder if oh actually they just took their time to get the right people together. It looks great. I'm I'm not going to lie. I am a little bit tired of uh, Western-ish assassins 
Stephen we've talked about Matthew we've seen the desert really excited for Riz Ahmed love Gyllenhaal mm. don't get me wrong but I and I haven't read the book so I don't know whether I want to do that or then go in just film alone I'm looking forward to being surprised I really want to be surprised because looking at this it, it it's just a bit to me it just seems a bit gritty and not in a true mm. grit kind of way I don't know it's it's quite you know the color grade is quite blue and quite dirty if it's got some wit to it if it really i i want to be surprised but at the moment coming to it with absolutely knowing nothing about it eh, i don't know i think i think that's fair i've certainly seen a lot of people when the first couple of trailers debuted basically saying that they because the the book i think has a very tricky tone and the trailers are kind of emphasizing different aspects of it that it's kind of hard to see why it would be different from most westerns and obviously having not seen the movie i don't know if they get it exactly right but i think there is a really funny wistful and melancholy tone to the novel which i think could really set it apart from just your i don't know your hostiles or your bone ho- tomahawks or whatever, okay. which you know I like. I like bone tomahawk a lot, but it's like that. You you're right. That whole genre of revisionist western does feel like it has fallen into a little bit of a rut recently. Because that's where um, you and I differ, Ed. Uh, I trying to be as pithy as ever in my letterboxed review. Uh, I gave bone tomahawk a uh, two word review, which was bore tomayorn. So I think that just shows where we divulge in terms of our taste. But you're right. But everything that you're saying is kind of persuading me. So I'll, I'll just, I'll nod. I'll nod. Okay. And, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Remains to be seen. The next one for September I have is a movie that I'm fully prepared for it to be bad. Because I think there are elements of it that could backfire. But uh, the trailer at least uh, intrigued me which is the movie A Simple Favour, which is a kind of Hitchcockian thriller from, as the trailer says, the darker side of the mind of Paul Feig, Um, (laughs) which is a ridiculous way of advertising a movie. But um, it's got Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick as two women who become friends. Blake Lively disappears and things kind of get very strange and creepy from there and i i'm mainly interested in it because of the cast of like blake lively and and anna kendrick and i think it would be interesting to see what paul feig would do as a director if he's not going to just kind of like fall back on improv which i think he can handle well but also can bog his movies down i completely agree and that was my main issue with ghostbusters which it just suffered from SNL-itis so desperately, where it may have been mm. improv-wise quite funny on set, but as soon as you got to that editing room, it was just so clear that they were desperately trying to string things together and stuff didn't settle and work out. I thought that the darker side of the mind of Paul Feig was the Joel McHale show with Joel McHale, but apparently I'm wrong. <laughs> Thing is, yeah. a simple favour, Ed, this is my the sister's brothers. I mm. saw the trailer initially thought it was a funny or die sketch and i thought is funny or die still going and then i thought <laughs> oh no wait this is a hundred percent real and i'm so up for it i love anna kendrick doing anything dramatic like i think she's so overlooked in stuff like happy christmas 
mm. where I think she manages oh, yeah. to really plausibly convey someone who's sweet but is really pushing it. And I'm looking forward to seeing, like, as you say, this sort of Hitchcockian. I, I almost wonder, like, it looks like Blake Lively just dived into Paul Feig's wardrobe and was like, this is what I'm wearing as my character. So I'm fascinated mm-hmm. by this whole kind of Lux Annie Hall style tuxedo wearing thing. And I just looking at it, it's one of those things where I'm like, I have absolutely no idea where this film is going to go. So for yeah. curiosity alone, um, I'm 100% in. I'm so ready for it to be kind of terrible, but I think it's going to be genius. Yeah, and for me, I think it's really interesting viewing it in the context of, you know, we've had this revival of rom-coms over the last couple of months that everyone's got very excited about. This year certainly feels like a year where a lot of genres that people have not previously paid much attention to or which have kind of been allowed to languish in the realm of kind of lower budget filmmaking have made something of a resurgence and the adult orientated thriller kind of like twisty drama suspense thing seems like something that might be due a comeback because you know people like a little bit of variety and the older audiences who aren't flocking to go and watch uh, superhero movies by and large probably could do with something like this and if this sparks studios to say hey let's take 10 15 million that we were i don't know just going to burn in a dumpster somewhere (laughs) and give it to someone to make a a twisty thriller that makes 60 million then you know that that for me would be uh, definitely a net positive even if the movie ends up being not that good but like bit like you I'm, i'm hopeful that it winds up being something at least strange and interesting you're right i mean gone girl was years ago now but oh yeah and of course that's you know based on a book i'm not entirely sure whether this is an adaptation or an original screenplay but Mm. i would love it i would really love it if at the end it is then revealed that this is paul rust's character in love's erotic thriller (laughs) that he manages to make with all of his friends i'm so up for that so yeah bring it on and finally for september i have the old man and the gun which is the latest movie from the weirdly prolific david lowry who have has made like pretty much a film a year over the last couple of years uh most of which have been pretty good and 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 interesting this is the final movie to feature robert redford who announced like a year ago that this was going to be his last movie but then everyone suddenly remembered that a few weeks ago and everyone suddenly was like oh you know he's great i can't believe we're not going to get any more performances from him i was like i'm, I'm pretty sure when he signed on to this movie he said it was going to be his last but that's Beside the point, uh, it's kind of like a uh, old-timey crime drama. I think I believe he plays like an older criminal who's going on one last job. It's apparently a real great showcase for him and Sissy Spacek, who also co-stars in it. It unfortunately does feature Casey Affleck, and that is deeply regrettable. But um, her, maybe he'll be under a sheet in this one as well. But he, I, I, I've really liked what I've seen of David Lowry's work, and I think he's a very interesting filmmaker who has shown a willingness to work in a lot of different tones and at different budget levels and different audiences and i'd be really interested to see what he does with something like this which seems so much more overtly commercial than something like a ghost story yeah i am afraid that i'm going to be that spoil sport in the corner because i really (laughs) can't get on with david lowry stuff i really tried i Ain't Them Bloody Saints 
uh, had a sort of interesting premise and then just sort of drifted for me. I haven't seen the ghost story because all of the Casey Affleck stuff came out and I drew a line in the sand that went all the way from a ghost story to Manchester by the sea. Um, And I don't feel like I'm lacking in my life at all for having not seen them. But you're right. Like Lowry is, I mean, if you picture in your head, the idea of a sort of hipster Gen X, sorry, no Gen Y ish filmmaker, the picture that you have in your head looks like David Lowry. And he is sort of this poster child and, you know, hasn't, been massively prolific but like you say every couple of years comes out with a film that seems to blow everyone away and this is much more commercial so I don't know whether he's moving into this or away from it if this is his straight story I don't know and you know Robert Redford is always good to watch his face is just getting more and more amazing as time gets on Mm, but yeah yeah again this is one I will probably be sitting out of you can tell me how it was Ed okay deal So now we move on to October and a movie that I've been excited about for months ever since the trailer dropped and I've only now become more excited because it's been playing at a bunch of festivals and has been getting rave reviews. It is the new version of A Star Is Born, written and directed by Bradley Cooper, America's new greatest auteur. Um, I say that slightly, obviously I haven't seen the film, but it's still very weird to think that that's how people are, are, are viewing Bradley Cooper. But um, fair play to him and starring Lady Gaga, who is kind of taking on the role previously played by people like Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand. And uh, yeah, I'm just I'm very, very excited for it. The trailer for it is great. I think it's an incredibly sturdy story. I think the fact that it's been done every, you know, every couple of decades, except for the 90s, which I, I honestly feel like we're really poorer for, I think a 90s or star is born about the grunge scene could have been really fun but um yeah I'm, I'm 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 just totally on board for this i think it's gonna be really good i'm so excited i when the trailer dropped i was like oh, and it's such a beautifully done trailer like old school uh big gold letters and it it just perfectly kind of sets you up for what's about to happen and i remember watching the lady gaga documentary and it features her getting all of these balloons and flowers because she sealed the deal to be cast in this. And Mm. it's interesting because I think Lady Gaga has always in some way, apart from her most recent album, uh, Joanne, actually, which I think was so personal. And I think she was sort of licking her wounds slightly that it didn't do commercially as well or critically even, but that was just so deeply personal. And through that documentary, you can see how much it meant to her and her family. But all of her work on some way shape or form is about fame and about um making it so i cannot Mm. think of anyone more perfect who can actually properly sing in the same um instance as barbara streisand and and judy garland's legends both and i'm interested to see what bradley cooper does with this like of all the stories to pick of him to because it's not like he's doing a he's not doing a Clooney, is he i'm Mm. interested to see what he's done with it and what this story means to him for him to take it on and it looks like they have fantastic chemistry already from the trailer and I can't wait for just a kind of barnstorming musical numbers and it does look a, a wee bit darker than some of the previous versions of the film so no I'm stoked 
Yeah, and, and some of the songs have been co-written by uh, Jason Isbell, who's a great country singer, lovely uh, lefty uh, singer-songwriter who uh, I, whose music I really, really love. So I'm really excited to see him probably get an Oscar nomination, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always excited when people who you would never, ever expect in a million years to be in the conversation to uh, to kind of make their way into it like that. Uh, and also, I'm just excited this movie got made because this has been in the offing for, I'm going to say, at least 10 years that people have been trying to get a new version of A Star Is Born made. And like for a long time, it was going to star Beyonce and be directed by Clint Eastwood. And I think that was the version that eventually brought Bradley Cooper to it because he was going to star and Eastwood was going to direct because they had worked together so well on American Sniper. And uh, I'm glad that Eastwood hasn't directed it because I saw Jersey Boys. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm fine with him not doing another musical. Yeah, I, yeah, just very, very excited to see this story done in what looks like a, a, a kind of a more grounded way than it has in previous iterations not that there's anything wrong with the kind of like the classic hollywood sheen of the no, 50s of version not. or the insane cocaine fueled pomp of the 70s version but like, that's it's just, been it's just nice to see this story told in a different way to suit a different era completely and there's little uh i feel like i get little crazy heart vibes from it Mm, and yeah. that's a film that I really love and I think is like a you know one of those mid-budget films that was really nicely made didn't get an awful lot of appraisal at the time but features a wonderful performance from uh, the dude himself and mm. uh yeah I I agree with you like those those adaptations have been done now it's time for something that honestly will also probably speak to a lot of the heartland um mm. and it'll be interesting to see whether it takes like you say if you've got this kind of lefty singer songwriter on board if it does take more of a stand against mm. uh political machinations that are going on and that are often hitched to that kind of those kinds of audiences just now so we'll see we'll see another movie that harkens back to a different era is the latest installment in the halloween franchise which uh you know i i wouldn't usually be that excited for a revival of halloween because uh like predator it's a series that has like one or two good movies in it and for the most part you know like the, even like the revival 10 years ago that rob zombie was behind while interesting as an entry into the kind of like the really gruesome horror movies that was being made at the time still didn't really hold a candle to the original but this version the the crew that's been assembled for it is directed by david gordon green who i I don't, I don't know why I keep giving him so many passes because, uh, yeah, some of his movies of late uh, haven't been great. But he's uh, a director who I find very interesting and is co-written by Danny McBride. Those guys have obviously worked together a bunch over the last 10 years with some of their great work, greatest work on TV, of course, with Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals. But they're working on it. It's got Jamie Lee Curtis back as, as Laurie Strode. It's got the original shape back playing Michael Myers. It has... Uh, essentially jettisoned most of the lore of the series by saying that they're not brother and sister anymore. It's going back to the original John Carpenter's on board as a producer and a composer. And the trailer for it just looks amazing for a 2018 kind of horror movie revival of a long dormant franchise. It looks atmospheric. It's starkly shot in some ways, but I, I often think of like the high angle shot of 
Michael standing alone in the yard of the psychological hospital where you know the, the two psychologists are approaching him with the mask as being a particularly striking image and it also has a moment that makes me shudder every time I see the trailer which is when uh, he is banging on the door of the bathroom in a gas station and then he just drops a bunch of teeth <laughs> of someone he's previously brutally killed oh. and any movie that gets that reaction from me I think is going to obviously kind of warrant attention but but certainly one has that kind of pedigree behind it and seems to be taking this almost terminator 2 approach to the story of bringing back the original character and having them face off against this terrifying formative trauma in her life uh with a kind of a new generation and and how it factors into her the entire way she approaches the world feels to me very innovative and exciting it's so relevant as well Mm, given that i had zero interest surprise surprise kel surprise then i watched the trailer and i was like yes jamie lee get your gun (laughs) i think the odd thing is that what we've what i've just realized is that a lot of the stuff that we're excited about has across the board had brilliant trailers there are some really good there's some really good editing going on post-production mm. to, to get these trailers together because that was it the trailer just absolutely blew me away and i think the thing is is that if you're going to bring a sequel into the world it has to be somehow relevant for it to really stand its ground and i can't see anything more relevant than laurie strode original babysitter supreme and armed with a knitting needle killing the big the big baddie yeah, how, how that certainly. can't be even better now in terms of me too and and time's up and and all of this kind of let's finally kill this thing and i think (laughs) uh blumhouse of course who are uh, producing it yes that is exciting as well because we talked about this at length in the horror episode so i will just very quickly recap now in terms of what they do it is very fast-paced quick to respond to things so i think it's going to be if like we said how i said you know the first purge is one of the most blatantly and gleefully anti-Trump films. I think this is definitely a will be more than two fingers up to Weinstein et al. Yeah, absolutely. Next up, I mean, we mentioned him just in, in passing briefly, but uh, Jeff Bridges is a star of a new movie called Bad Times at the El Royale, which is the latest movie from Drew Goddard, who previously directed Cabin in the Woods and also has like worked on a bunch of really great TV shows over the last couple of years as a writer and producer and not a huge amount has been given away about the plot it kind of has a jj abrams mystery box thing going on but it has a great cast it's got jeff bridges as someone who uh is pretending to be a priest but apparently is some sort of criminal it's got john ham as don draper essentially by the look of it it being set in the 60s chris hemsworth as some sort of charles mansony kind of court leader maybe and yeah the the trailer for it i think airs just on the right side of the jj abrams kind of keep them guessing side of things where it's it looks cool it shows off a bunch of stuff but it doesn't leave you thinking that maybe there's going to be something of great significance to it all it just makes you think okay this looks cool and i'm excited to see what secrets it has to show us the premise sounds quite similar to a recent release hotel artemis so i don't know whether these were two kind of things in, in, in parallel like this kind of idea of like oh you know all of these uh 
wrong ones kind of turn up on the same day at the same place. I'm a hundred percent more interested in Jeff Bridges and that lot rather than Hotel Artemis, which looks from the trailer. I mean, it was an appalling trailer. It felt very yeah. far too kind of arch and not really satisfyingly. It didn't make me giddy for it. Whereas this, I'm like, I feel like I could take my dad to see this on a rainy Sunday afternoon. And I'm always, mm-hmm. I'm always looking for suggestions for that. And, and there's not been many of late. So yeah, I think me and my dad are going to have a good time. Uh, another good dad movie, First Man, the latest movie from Damien Chazelle, who apparently hates America. Uh, <laughs> the, the conversation. <laughs> Loves jazz, hates America. Weird combination. Yeah, the, the, the story of Neil Armstrong and the mission to put a man on the moon, which has gotten a lot of flack from people saying that it's anti-American because it apparently doesn't feature the scene of them putting the flag on the moon but some people who have actually seen the movie say the flag is all over the fucking movie, so what the hell are you talking about? But setting that aside, I've got mixed feelings on Chazelle. I really liked Whiplash. I thought that La La Land had a lot of good qualities, but it didn't kind of come together as a musical for me. This looks like it could be the kind of very rigorous and exciting middle brow fare that I think is his bread and butter. You know, like Whiplash, I think, is a works as a movie because it takes an idea and a relationship that is often the subject of Oscar movies and then but treats it in a way that kind of ratchets up the intensity and the discomfort in a way that people aren't used to seeing in Oscar movies and while I, I'm not sure if there's that much material in First Man that could lean in that direction I think the idea of taking a man's obsession and a country's obsession really with trying to be the first to reach the moon could provide for some really interesting dramatic situations Uh, and so I'm kind of excited for that and also he is just a formerly very talented director and I think with the right combination of story and form and this certainly lends itself to kind of visual spectacle we could get something pretty engaging exciting. Quick point where can I get a bumper sticker that says love jazz hate America? (laughs) <laughs> uh, let, let's set up the SRS Etsy store perfect uh, fi- finally we've got merch <laughs> yes please let that be the first piece of merch I would be <laughs> so happy I have the same reservations as you I think that Whiplash is amazing and my heart rate mm. definitely went up and stayed there for the entirety of watching that film La La Land again in my pithy letterbox reviews blah blah bland <laughs> Nice. Thank you. Um, So this one hopefully will then be Whiplash in space with Mm. Ryan Gosling as Miles Teller and the universe (laughs) uh, taking J.K. Simmons' role. (laughs) It it would, like you say, I think it would be really interesting to see something that's not necessarily, oh, nuance, It's it's a bastard, isn't it? Because from what I can tell, it sounds like, hey, America innovates and does lead the world. But at what cost? Yeah. And who owns the moon? Who who owns the moon? You put a flag on it, fine. Is it yours? Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. I think, again, it would be nice to see Ryan Gosling finally doing something that is, again, kind of moving away from the rom-com, strong, silent, psychopathic type. I think he's finally starting to branch out in his roles, which is a very good thing. Mm. Other members of the cast yeah. look great. Uh, Claire Foy, for one. 
Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But again, of all the stories that need to be told, I'm, I'm, I'm again on the fence on this one. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't feel like the story we most need to hear now even if it is an exciting story. Yeah, so so that that is my kind of like misgiving about it. And particularly in terms of a it clearly being geared as an Oscar contender like from yeah. the moment it was announced, it was hard not to think, oh this is Gosling gunning, gunning for his Oscar finally. Um like that 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 always gives me pause because if a movie is trying to be an Oscar movie that always feels like contrived. Yes, and it does limit how good it can actually be. Like, like the, the best Oscar movie of the last, like, five years was Mad Max Fury Road in that regard. Because it was a movie that no one expected to win Oscars and it just got nominated for a shit ton through the sheer force of its brilliance. Which doesn't necessarily seem to be the case if everyone is thinking... If everyone seems to be going, okay, this is going to be a contender. So, Damien Chazelle, obviously, with the, as you say, yeah, it's I, I agree with you, it's, it's entirely kind of Oscar contriving, but how sweet would it be, Ed? How sweet would it be, a year on, they're back in the ring, if Beale Street could talk, versus mm. first man, Barry Jenkins uh. and Damien Chazelle meet back. Like, I would, I would so be there for that fight. I would be like, ring the bell, because obviously I'm... Surprise, surprise, you, Emily. Love Moonlight. What? Mm-hmm. Got that in every episode. Got to yeah. get in how much I love it. Obviously, I'm so much more excited about If Beale Street Could Talk, which is the latest Barry Jenkins um, based on a novel. Again, lots of lots of uh, literary adaptations coming through uh, by James Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is a story I want to hear. This is a story I want to see on screen. But it would be absolutely the sweetest thing ever if Barry Jenkins wiped the floor with Damien Chazelle once more. I want this to be the, the plot of Feud Season 2. Just <laughs> Barry Jenkins and Damien Chazelle going up against each other year after year. <laughs> uh, I guess it would have to be Feud Season 20 then, I guess. But yeah, I, um, that, and would be wildly inappropriate because apparently they both get on very well <laughs> and are oh, and perfectly happy. A gentleman's wager, no. Um, but yeah, no, Beale Street could talk. I am very, very excited about, like you, I love... Moonlight, and I also really like Medicine for Melancholy, Barry Jenkins's uh, first movie, and I'm just so excited that after you know that that first movie, which he made in like 2008, and then he had it took him seven or eight years to make another movie, that he is able to make his third movie so quickly, and also that he is he has like seven projects in development at the moment which uh you know i'm i'm just so excited that we're at a point now where we are about to be overwhelmed with barry jenkins movies and tv shows and this one just from the first trailer that's been released looks so beautiful and like moonlight feels like looks feels like it has such a different texture to a lot of American movies, and uh, I'm really excited to see him continue to bring that kind of European slash kind of Asian, because obviously Wong Kar Wai is a, a huge influence mm-hmm. on his work. Mm-hmm. Bring that to you know a story by James Baldwin, who obviously is one of the great American writers, and who obviously who, who wrote from a perspective as a black gay man living in America for part of his life and France for, for kind of like the end of it, whose, whose perspective feels like 
we're more ready as a society to kind of see on screen than in the past, or the industry is more ready to make those stories. I think probably for there, there were certainly people who were ready for that perspective in the past. But yeah, I'm I'm just yeah I'm here for it. I'm very excited to see what if Beale Street Could Talk turns out to be. So we're so we're in November now with Beale Street Could Talk. So I think next up we'll talk about. Uh, someone who we talked about just a couple of weeks ago on the Play for Today episode, Mike Lee, who returns with his latest uh, feature drama, Peterloo, a historical drama about the Peterloo Massacre, which took place in the, I want to say, 1800s. And from the trailer, looks great. I mean, I'm not as big a fan of Mike Lee's period stuff as his kind of like contemporary movies, but this certainly seems to be him working on a scale that he hasn't worked on in a little while you know it feels like something that is ready for our current moment it looks like it's going to be a big starring role for Rory Kinnear who's an actor who I really really enjoy and who I think is primed for a big role in something like this and if nothing else it's going to give us a lot of entertaining interviews from Mike Lee who always seems incredibly put out by the fact his movies get nominated for awards uh and most recently of course he was asked about what he thinks about Amazon being behind Peterloo and he basically said that my movies have always been funded by a reprehensible source <laughs> or words to those effects uh which uh yeah is such a Mike Lee thing to say it's interesting that you say that because there's a great interview with him on screen daily just now Oh yeah, and he again he uh, is kind of settling into his place as the grumpy old grandfather of uh, British filmmaking. And there are some points which are a little bit like you know he's not quite up on the idea of diversity quotas as you'd hope that he would be, but he does actually mention a fair bit of his time at play for today in that he stresses that you know even though he's like diversity quotas, eh, he he stresses that the funding should be liberal and arty and imaginative like it was for his day back in the BBC, which is still nice and you think you know well even if you're not going to get on board with everything then you know actually just following where the money is and and hoping that that will go to more interesting projects that have previously been overlooked would be great also featuring true queen of my heart and angel of the north maxine peak yes one of the greats one of the greats can't wait for more of her because she's been doing some really interesting stuff i still have to see funny cow that's another thing that i have to catch up on but the funny thing is is that it, news of the film really caused one of your big twitter flutters because there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of great historians that you can follow on twitter who i follow mainly through producing past tense thank you very much mm. shameless plug and the only reason that i know about the peterloo massacre which was in august 1819 according to my note here only reason I know about it is because I had a Liverpudlian English teacher who taught me Byron and the Romantics. So, of course, I fell in love with him. And <laughs> he explained, I think it was, I don't remember why it came up. I think it was to do with like Keats and Shelley and the Romantics and pushing back and all of it being around this time. And he told us the story of the Peterloo Massacre and ended with a flourish. And that is why I will never vote Tory. <laughs> so that stuck with me. So I feel like I have. Thanks to my high school, college English teacher, I have that much more historical awareness of what's going on. You can't get anything more relevant now, really. I mean, it it sounds horrifically grim, Mm. Um, but yeah, it hasn't been it hasn't been 
commemorated in any way. And the flutter on, on Twitter came from, oh, who knows about it? Who's taught about it? Like, this is a major event in British history. And then that became a historiographical, never say that right first time, historiographical uh, discussion of, well, what do we teach? But I think aside from that, the fact that this is going to be such a huge project and you look at something like, uh, for example, Hillsborough, the televised mm. uh, docudrama and how that was, you know, like incredibly harrowing, but really important because at least somewhere in the cultural canon, it's recognised. Yeah. It's also interesting that Mike Lee, again, on, on things that he's kind of up on his grumpy, grumpy old man horse about, is that can so often shun him. Yeah, he'll get a, a little spot at Venice. Uh, I say little spot, you know what I mean. It's all relative. Um, mm. But yeah, the fact and he's still he's still like oh can. <laughs> so I wonder what it is that you know he's just not flashy enough or he's not quite gritty enough or what I don't know. But it is. I think Peter Lou is going to be in some way a response to Dunkirk, or at least how mm. no one can really hijack Peter Lou for their own you kipping dastardly deeds as dunkirk could be so i'm interested right. to see what happens in particularly the uk when it gets released yeah i think the reason why maybe mike lee doesn't get a look in at can is that he tends to operate in unfashionable genres mm. like big like historical movies about gilbert and sullivan which is like <laughs> very a niche thing to focus on or you know just kind of like very small intimate family dramas but so so people kind of like dismiss that sort of stuff out of hand but what he does within those genres is often so you know pushes so far against the conventions of those genres that i think people don't realize that they're actually really great and fascinating like they just write, write them off as you know heritage cinema or whatever or just yeah. miserableism when in fact, there's often a lot more going on underneath them. Like, I don't think anyone who watches Naked could <laughs> think that he's just someone who is making, you know, like, they wouldn't say he's like Mike Newell or something. No. Like, you know, he's he's someone who is incredibly interesting. And, and you know, his whole process is geared towards giving us great performances and operating in a way that tries to push against and avoid cliché. But because people don't really care about the kind of genres he works in, maybe that's why people don't realise how great he often is. That's my theory, anyway. I think it's a top theory, Ed. <laughs> um, next up on my list is a movie that uh, I've been excited for for ages, ever since it won the Palm Door at Cannes, which is Hirokazu Kurida's Shoplifters. Kurida uh, is... A Japanese filmmaker who's made a bunch of really great movies over the years. I'm particularly fond of his movie Still Walking, which is a really beautiful, achingly sad family drama about a family mourning on the anniversary of the death of the son in the family, which has this particularly strange and uncomfortable dynamic of where they invite the man who is responsible for the son's death. Uh, he's someone who's just a brilliant person at kind of cataloging the minutiae of everyday family life and all of his movies are, are really wonderful uh this one has a premise which i think is is perfect for this kind of thing he does 
which is a family of small-time crooks taking a child they find on the street and it sounds from all the reviews that it's him working at the absolute peak of his abilities uh yeah i'm just i'm just very excited to see what he does with that premise and the kind of lilting beautiful small sad stories that he excels at telling there's shades of i daniel blake in there is there not in Mm. terms of looking at people who are absolutely scraping to get by but obviously with a much more lyrical and and slightly more serene would that be right in saying yeah if if i were to describe his movies in one word serene would definitely be one of them and i think that's the beauty of what so much of japanese cinema and korean cinema has done and continues to do is that they're very hard to neatly categorize yeah so again it just looks like a really intriguing and different watch and i think it sounds like even though it sounds like it may be quite classically in terms of its plot the most straightforward of what we've been talking about i think it will probably be the one that surprises us most yeah Uh, and to to go back to the well of westerns uh which we've already talked about how exhausted we are of westerns with uh the sisters brothers the new movie by the cohen brothers will be out in november called the ballad of buster scruggs which is uh, a fantastic name and you know the most coheny name you'll stumble across i think which i'm excited for primarily because uh it was meant to be a tv series um they were they made it as a tv series for netflix and at a certain point they said uh no we actually think this would work better as a movie so they've done an anthology of six movies set in the west with a huge collection of really great actors uh including oh no i mean it's it's kind of starts off on the wrong foot because it's got james franco in it so let's skip past him but it's got um liam neeson david krumholtz brendan gleason zoe Zahn, stephen root of course who else would you cast in a western movie if you were the coen brothers but tom waits whose segment has been getting a lot of praise uh out of uh out of uh, Venice, I think, is where it just played at. Yes. Uh, Ralph Innocent, who is in everything these days. Yeah. Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah, it's just got a really, really cool, fun cast of people, uh, and uh, I'm I'm excited for it because I'm I'm excited for every new Coen Brothers movie, and I'm particularly excited because the reaction to it so far has been like every Coen Brothers movie, where some people are saying it's a masterpiece, some people are saying it's a complete mess, uh, and you know things usually kind of shake out towards the masterpiece end of things eventually but yeah I'm, I'm just i'm just really excited for it and i'm just excited that they did what i think pretty much everyone wishes that netflix would do with all of their tv shows which is cut out all of the flab and just say okay here's a two-hour movie enjoy as much as i completely agree with cutting out all of the uh, flab from netflix series that should be films i'm gonna be the spoil sport i'm not i'm not that fast because like we said i have such western fatigue it might be mm. one where yes i will chalk it up on the list of rainy sunday dad movies but i think we will probably find it mildly amusing and then go home and rewatch a serious man or oh brother where art thou instead that's fair enough and so we'll go on to december now and uh, the first movie for me that really leaps out because again this is another one that had just a great trailer and really has a fantastic aesthetic is spider-man into the spider-verse and whilst i think we have had a perhaps too many spider-men of late Um, (laughs) certainly we seem to be burning through them at a tremendous rate uh i am i'm really excited for this one because it is an animated movie and it looks visually quite 
stunning. It has a look to it that really mimics the feel and the dynamism of comic books. In particular, when you watch the trailer, you notice that sound effects kind of appear as word bubbles, which I think is a really cool thing. And also, I'm a big fan of the whole notion of the Spider-Verse. I remember growing up as a kid watching the Spider-Man cartoon series from the 90s, which had a whole massive arc where Peter Parker gets sucked into this multiple universe thing where he encounters all of the different versions of himself that exist across different timelines, uh, which I always found to be really cool. And this looks like a very fun take on that. And also it's notable because it's the first, I believe, adaptation of the stories focused around Miles Morales, who is the newer Spider-Man, the the first black Spider-Man. And uh, yeah, I'm just very, very excited to see what happens with that particular style and seeing a version of Spider-Man that isn't tied into the regular MCU stuff that can exist as itself as just a cool Spider-Man story. It looks beautiful, you're right. Like, And it's lovely to see like we were talking about earlier in terms of genres that may be unfashionable or haven't really come around like in terms of just animation I think we're we're sorely lacking that kind of middle to adult market which again Netflix has been absolutely hammering and doing really well from so it'd be nice to see a big screen adaptation for sure I just hope there have been there are too many Spider-Man there's so many I've had three <laughs> I've had three yeah three in my short little life and it's not to say that they're not all great. Like I think, you know, Tobey Maguire, um, Andrew Garfield, and um, his name is it Tom Holland? No. Yeah, Tom Holland. Umbrella dancing man, like that that boy yeah. can dance. But and I'm really excited that it is Miles Morales, and that is going to be so huge for a younger generation who's just coming up to you know understand they don't have to just be Black Panther; they can be freaking Spider Man. I think that's really mm-hmm. cool. Whether I'll be, I'm not chomping at the bit to watch it. It will be one that, again, Ed, either you watch or you have to persuade me a bit more to be as excited about it as other stuff. But I can't deny that even though personally it's not completely my bag, it's going to be a very important film. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this one is one, I'll, I'll be surprised if you're not excited for this one. The next one I have on my list is Destroyer. Destroyer! The newest movie by Karen Kusama, who uh, previously directed The Invitation, of course, which we talked about at length on a previous episode, and stars uh, Nicole Kidman, Toby, Toby Kebbell, who's a, who I've always been a huge fan of, Tatiana Maslany, Sebastian Stan, Bradley Whitford, Scoop McNary, uh, a whole bunch of really cool people, and the premise sounds great. A police detective reconnects with people from an undercover assignment in her distant past, yeah. which, again, in terms of we you know we're talking about movies that engage with the notion of trauma and people kind of facing the pain in their past that sounds really fantastic the you know images that we've seen so far of it of Nicole Kidman in the role look great and yeah I think Karen Kusama did an, an amazing job with The Invitation I thought that movie was was really fantastic and I'm so excited to see her coming back so soon because obviously you know that we talk we talked in the past about the systemic bias against women in Hollywood you know women can make a successful movie and then uh, nothing happens weirdly enough because of sexism and of the you know kind of market forces and things like that which are tied to sexism and it's just so exciting that after she got to make this great movie that everyone loved she's getting 
to make another movie, which everyone is excited about and has, you know, Nicole Kidman, who is, uh, I, I would say, in probably the greatest form of her career as an actress. You know, her work over the last couple of years has been absolutely stunning, and I'm really excited to see what she does working with Karen Kasana. Hope I didn't burst everyone's eardrums there, but correct, Ed. I am <laughs> really, really excited. In case anyone isn't aware, Karen Kasama's The Invitation is one of my favourite films ever. I think she's mm-hmm. a genius. I'm so excited for her to do something which is, you know, you couldn't get really someone much bigger than Nicole Kidman. Like, this is a big deal. And mm. Toby Kebbell, oh, I mean, he's just, he's so good. Why isn't he in more? Why was he ever in Ben-Hur? It's fine. He's in Destroyer. We're moving forward. <laughs> Again, yeah. the thing is, is like the, the general premise to me doesn't sound actually that interesting. I think maybe they're holding back probably and it's just a very like um, brief tagline because you could cut that out and put it into a number of like Netflix procedurals or like BBC procedurals yeah. or whatever. But I have absolute faith in Karen Kasama and I think it's going to be so much more than that and it will be visually arresting and emotionally raw but beautifully paced i mean maybe i'm setting myself up for a fall but i can't i can't i'm just i'm too i'm too excited i'm too excited Ed. Uh, a movie that i'm excited for on principle but the constituent parts maybe aren't quite as strong but i, I really am wanting it to be good as mary poppins returns mm. uh, my main concern is that it's directed by rob marshall who yeah. is by and large a terrible director but it has Emily Blunt as Mary Poppins, which, honest to God, is the most perfect casting <laughs> you could you could hope for. Uh, I mean, seriously, who else could it be? It's got uh, Meryl Streep, Colin Firth, Emily Mortimer as the grown-up Jane Banks, which is uh, kind of incredible. And as is Ben Wishaw as Michael Banks, that is oh, A-plus. A-plus plus casting, oh my God. Yeah, Lin-Manuel Miranda as the, I guess, the Dick Van Dyke equivalent, which also A-plus. Uh, Dick Van Dyke... Again, in the movie, this time playing the son of the old bank manager he played in the original, which I think is a wonderful bit of casting and uh, probably the best way to work him into the story. And yeah, I'm, I, I love Mary Poppins so much. It's one of my all-time favourite movies. I am sceptical of a sequel made now being able to capture the unique magic of that movie and i'm very skeptical of rob marshall being able to capture the magic of that original movie Mm. but i mean that cast i mean it's got to be at least good with that cast otherwise i'll just be so i'll cry so much oh ed (laughs) i'll pass you my tissues we can share them and then also we have uh, roma which is the new movie from alfonso cuaron which just yesterday i think played at venice and has been met with Rapturous reviews across the board. It is a movie set in Mexico in the 1970s. Apparently it's very autobiographical. It focuses on the life of a nanny for a somewhat wealthy family and her relationship to the family and their relationship to her and about the experience of living in kind of mild luxury in a country that is kind of racked by tension and discomfort at at a crucial time in Mexico's history uh, apparently it's gorgeous you know it's shot in black and white and it makes full use of Quaron's you know ability as a visual storyteller and uh, I'm, I'm I'm very very excited for it I'm, I'm very excited that after you know five years after Gravity which was a huge commercial success for him and you know winning the best director Oscar 
uh, I'm happy. I'm kind of excited to see that he has taken all of that clout and made something so small and intimate, and that he has pretty much bullied single-handedly Netflix into giving it a theatrical run. Kind of essentially saying to them what everyone's been saying, which is it doesn't hurt to put your movie in theatres for at least a few weeks to build attention and buzz if you want to be con- uh, taken seriously as a real awards contender. Like, it doesn't hurt to play the games a little bit, and I'm, I'm glad that happened. that's going to happen, because uh, from everything I've seen of the movie, it seems like something that should be seen on a big screen, and I'm really excited to see a new Alfonso Cuaron movie on a big screen. Oh, Ed, same. I think everything that you're saying there in terms of the clout after a film like Gravity, which I thought was okay... Um, but it's a good experience. It, it is an it experience. Really You're right. Like hold up as a movie. No, I'd love to watch. I've actually watched it in IMAX. I didn't get to. I just watched it in your your old your old standard two D cinema screen. But I mm. do I do agree with you. I think it's just incredibly well played on all fronts. Like it looks like a beautiful film, and exactly what you're saying in terms of that strategy. It's like, can we not have the best of both worlds? So I'm excited to see him tell this story that, again, you know, it's got uh, standing ovations recently at Venice, uh, which doesn't always mean a marker of quality. But like you say, for, for someone to come back and, and wheel back round and say, OK, I've got Hollywood listening. Now it's time to listen to me. So that's uh, a pretty stellar selection of movies. And we only really scratched the surface because we didn't want to make this episode four hours long uh, <laughs> as previous previews of the year have been. But th- those are the movies that uh, that really leap out to us uh, and so we'll end the episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we recommend a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week i'm really late to the party on this one but it is a youtube interview series called hot ones mm, yeah this is where celebrities are interviewed progressively eating hot wings that get hotter and hotter <laughs> mm-hmm so there's a kind of Russian roulette aspect to it, although you know what's coming and yet it's yeah. still ridiculously entertaining. And the most recent one is uh, with Space Lord and all round eccentric himself, Jeff Goldblum. Mm-hmm. And he's watchable in anything, but particularly in this, because the kind of his slightly uh, eccentric shell ever so slightly is cracked by some of the higher, higher hot wings, which are vegan, I hasten to add. But he uh, he also uh, gives something eleven out of ten Goldblums, so I heart, I hardly recommend Hot Ones for some uh, yeah by by turns empathetic uh, empathetically wincing inducing uh, viewing and also just a nice a nice spin on your your standard interview. Cool, I'm going to recommend one of those video games they have now, one of those MTV video games. Oh, uh, the uh, MTV video uh, video computer games. Yeah, a little bit of a hint there for one of our future episodes coming up, if anyone knows what MTV Video Games refers to. It is an indie game called Donut County, which is has been kind of in development for a few years and has been previewed at a bunch of games, kind of expos over the last couple of years, and finally came out this week on PS4, which is what I played it on, and I believe it's also available on iOS and, you know, kind of like mobile platforms as well. And it is a curious little game in which you play a hole in the ground, which you move around to 
consume objects in the game the more objects you consume the bigger the hole gets until you know you consume everything on screen it's kind of for anyone who's familiar with the katamari series of games will be kind of know it as sort of a reverse version of that and it's a really lovingly designed game it's got this really cute aesthetic it is really fun playing because each level is essentially a little puzzle where you have to kind of like figure out in what order you need to devour all of these items and it's also is a surprisingly cute take on gentrification which is kind of all part of the plot where the holes are controlled by a company run by cartoon raccoons who uh, move into this neighborhood and drive up the property prices and put everyone out of work uh it's a very interesting take on you know kind of like the dangers of gentrification but told through this lovely cartoon world in which you devour all the objects in a neighborhood by playing a hole and it's really really fun the puzzles in it are all kind of like very intuitive it doesn't take very long to pick up the game it also doesn't take that long to complete and there's not much in the terms of post game other than like going through levels to do specific tasks uh, which is is fun in its own right but um for the the sort of two or three hours it takes to complete the game is really fun and it's a really worthwhile experience and particularly you know if you want something that's just really nice and calm and relaxing and lets you kind of enter a zen state at the end of the day it's it's pretty great it's also very funny there's like a lot of cutscenes of these characters discussing about how they ended up being dropped into this giant hole in the ground and also every item in the game you pick up gets put into a little encyclopedia and because the encyclopedia is written by raccoons um they are often very strange the the one that particularly made me laugh was describing a steak as living spaghetti that can hate um <laughs> and that, that's kind of the tone of the sense of humor of it it's kind of got a, a, a really kind of like lovely weird sense of humor uh yeah and i, I really recommend it donut county you have me at raccoons <laughs> If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on Stitcher, uh, Player FM, iTunes, all the usual places, and leave us a review. And rate us, recommend us to your friends. That's the best way to help us grow our audience. We can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week for something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye.